Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Mysterious Universe, Season 28, Episode 19. Coming up on this show, we've got the Invo Invasion of 1967, Contactees and the Phantom Gropers, and the Hunting Grounds of the Glimmer Man. I'm Benjamin Grundy. Joining me is Aaron Wright. I said Phantom Hair. It's not Phantom Gropers. No one's getting a Phantom Hair up their skirt as they walk through the house. I asked what the hands do, and you said they grope. Well, they tap. They tap and touch people. (laughs) How is that not what I'm saying? Is that what you've got coming up? (laughs) Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Well, it ties in with a very odd experience that I had uh, just after we recorded the last Plus show of very, very strange events that took place that kind of inspired me to continue down this path today of an invisible presence that might be here on this planet that is influencing humanity in ways that we couldn't even possibly begin to imagine. Are you talking about being lured to your balcony at night and seeing a bizarre alien light show Outside your house. Yes, that's exactly what So t- take me through what happened, because I tweeted the video a couple of days ago, and there's been all sorts of comments on what it could be. Yeah. I'm convinced that it's some kind of projection. Yeah, okay. Well, look, I do not know what this is at all, but it's the first time I've ever seen it. And to sum it up, essentially, I got home a little bit late on Tuesday night, and I do my typical routine of when I come home, and I went and got a glass of water from the fridge. And for whatever reason, there was like this flash. It was like a flash in the corner of my eye. And I thought, oh, that's kind of odd. And I look out through my window and my window looks down towards, um, you know, this kind of grassed and uh, I guess bushy kind of area. And I see through my tinted windows, this weird light show that's going on. It looks like a bunch of lights that are buzzing around. And I thought, oh, is this fireflies or something? Because I didn't even know we had fireflies. Apparently we do have fireflies (laughs) in Australia. But after you tweeted this video out, a lot of people have been saying that's not fireflies. So I wander out into my balcony and I find, okay, it's eerily silent. Like it's just, oh, really? It's like there's just normally there's dogs barking, cars driving past, something going on in the neighborhood. It's nothing. All I can just hear is this kind of hum in the background. Uh, I look over my balcony and there appears to be, and this is what's so disappointing about this stuff. And now I understand why when people go, oh, everyone's got a phone camera. How come you haven't got a decent picture? It's almost impossible to get a decent photograph of these things. So, it, yeah, you were saying it looks nothing. The video looks nothing, nothing like what like you saw. like what I saw. It was bright. It was extremely bright. And what it was, there seemed to be some type of central, bright, orangey, golden, warm white light with a whole heap of other similar colored lights buzzing around it. But there, it appeared to be flashing. Like it flashed a couple of times. Mm. And on the outside, there appeared to be like an orbit. There was like something that was orbiting around back and forward. But 
the patterns were all random. I know that you've said, and a few people have said, oh, it's like one of those laser light projectors for, for Christmas. Yeah, because Christmas decorations are coming up. You've got yours up. You're sure it yep. wasn't one of your own Christmas decorations? I ha- no. <laughs> <laughs> Look at the video. It's definitely not. No, first of all, I wouldn't point anything down that way. Secondly, those laser light projectors, the ones that I've seen here in Australia, they're only red or green. So right. this is a warm, white, golden kind of color. Um, the next thing was, I thought, well, could this be some type of animals or something? But what was really strange about this is I managed to film it for about, I don't know, 40 seconds, you know, maybe maybe a little bit longer. Uh, and then I, for whatever reason, I just went inside. Like, I just felt like I had to to go inside. So I go inside and I come back out because I'm like, oh, no, what am I doing? I go back out and it's there for like a few moments until lights on the hill down the road of a car approaching comes and then oh, they went out. It's gone. It's gone. And then this is a really creepy thing. I then notice, I look up onto the horizon because I can see out to the horizon. There is this massive red light on the horizon. It's huge. Like it's unlike anything I've ever seen before. I'm like, what the hell is that? And now I'm getting myself really worked up because it's like, holy God, like hell, like this is insane. <laughs> it was the moon. It was the. It was well, the, so did this coincide with the blood moon? Because there was a blood. There moon. was a blood moon, but the way it was, it wasn't there. Like I didn't see it before when it was like I was focusing on these lights, and it was only after I it disappeared that I then saw. It, and it was maybe a cloud got out of the way or something. Maybe that's a possibility. But the moon was sitting on the horizon. It was bright red and it was massive. It's the biggest I've ever seen it. And then did you look at the clock in the kitchen and it was four a.m. <laughs> And you had a sore no, butt. No, nothing like, there's nothing like that, fortunately. Weird puncture marks I, on your neck. <laughs> I, I saw that, actually, I started thinking about it afterwards because I thought, okay, this is this is kind of weird. And I've had other experiences in this particular house where, remember how I was saying a couple of years ago when we first moved up here, I was like, I woke up and I thought that, I mean, I knew that there wasn't, but I felt like there was a presence in the room. Uh, I've had a nanny that had been staying in the guest bedroom downstairs and she was like, oh yeah, I woke up and there was an old lady sitting in a chair. <laughs> which there's no old lady sitting in the chair. Um, had- it's just you in drag. <laughs> just think, yeah. Just a crowly outfit. Go no. back to sleep, darling. <laughs> this is my time. No, nothing like that. So it just added to this strange, but it got me thinking because I saw that uh, Krista DeMaio, who's a friend of the show, uh, commented, and she said, Aaron's an antenna for this kind of stuff. And I'm, I'm reluctant to admit it, but I think that I am, but I don't think it's anything to do with me. I think it's a classic case of what happens when people look into this stuff. Like it really does. Well, that's you. You're the one I know, looking into it. I do. I look so into it, is it you. all the time. But I think anyone that looks into it. Well, you know what's super weird is I was browsing the local Australian Courier Mail, the, the newspaper for our home state, and I noticed that there was a news report of UFO sightings going all up the coast of southeast Queensland, all the way to Caboolture, which is very close to us, basically our area. And uh, when I looked at the date, it was the night that you filmed oh, this thing. That's crazy. It's, it's so honestly people were crazy. seeing UFOs when you saw these lights. Look, I just, I do not know what this is. I mean, maybe it could have been insects, but it didn't appear to be insects. Some people have suggested bats, but the, we do have bats here. But the bats that we have are much bigger. Like they're almost flying fox-sized bats. So, I mean, maybe it could be juveniles, but the way that there seems to be a kind of um, relationship, like if you look closely at the video, you'll see that there appears to be some type of orbital relationship with the centre light and the things that are on the outside. So also where this was, there's no Christmas lights or decorations down there and it was over a road. It wasn't in someone's front yard. It was over a road uh, just in front of bushland and I've never seen it before. Now, the other factor to this is that I went to my neighbour who has lived in this place a lot longer than I have and I said to her, oh, I saw something really weird the other night 
And Did you show him the video? And I showed her the video and her reaction straight away is like, oh, that's Min Min Lights. Like straight away. Like oh. just, just straight. I said, well, w- what do you mean? And she's like, it's just Min Min Lights. She didn't elaborate. She just went back inside. <laughs> just totally based. Just like, <laughs> just Min Min Lights, doesn't elaborate, walks away. <laughs> <laughs> so take a look at the video. I'll link to it in the show notes for this episode so you can check it out for yourself. The, I'm sure there was an absolutely logical reason for this, but at the same time, I'm like, it's a bit weird. And, mm. the, the feeling, and it's right after the episode about the interdimensional monkeys. That's, <laughs> mm. Well, we've just done a show. And you know, now you're saying that there's reports of other people seeing, there's never reports of UFOs. No, it's pretty rare. It's and they're really all rare. up the coast until here's the weird thing about the UFO sightings that were in the news is that night they're seen all up the coast until it basically gets to where you live. Then there's no sightings further north. I know. It's like they came all the way to you and then stopped it's, and then no one saw it. it no and one the, saw anything after and that. And the fact though that it disappeared and the surreal nature of it. But I started, you know, understanding, as I said, about how people take photographs, they film this kind of stuff. And it just, it never does it justice. Like it just doesn't. And I was recalling a case from many, many years ago. I remember there was this uh, case that came out of, I think it was, it was the the Mendoza family, right? I remember this case and I looked it up today actually. So the Mendoza family had this really bizarre incident that had all the hallmarks of this kind of, it wasn't obviously the same. I don't think I'm a contactee. I don't think anything like that. But the elements of this kind of interaction are very similar because the Mendoza family were in Leon. Uh, this is in 1995. They're driving along as a family and they just see something. The mother, Eleanor, she sees something strange in the sky. But guess how it gets her attention? She recalls a bright flash. Like there's this bright mm. flash out of kind of the edge of her vision, which attracts her attention. Now, obviously, she turns to see what it is, and she thinks, oh, this could just be a star, a plane, something like that that's in the sky. But she looks closer and realizes that it's something, it's static. Like, it's something that's just sitting in the sky. And the moment that she looks at it, it emanates a strange sensation. It's like when you connect with it, it creates this kind of strange sensation, which then, in a contagion, spread throughout the car, which the husband described the same thing. He could feel it. The children in the back could feel it. Now, um, Eleanor grabs hold of a Kodak camera. She's just got like an old Kodak film camera. And she points it up at the object and takes a shot. And this is incredible. Like She describes it as being, it's a saucer-shaped craft. It looks like a UFO. It's absolutely huge. It's incredible. But the moment that she clicks the camera, yeah. It's gone. So many cases like this. In, so many. In, in the stuff I've got coming up, I'm going to be looking at this new book that came out very recently called The Green Man, God, Fairy, or Extraterrestrial by Sam Payne. And she references right in the introduction, you may remember this because we, we talked about it on the show in uh, David Politi's um, Missing 411, The Hunted. Yeah. There's a, a story he includes of Jan Maccabee. And you may remember this. She oh, was, this is Bruce Maccabee's wife. Is that who it is? Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. This well, is, was she, that at the end? Yeah, it's right at the end of the book. She's bow hunting and she's sitting in a tree stand. The predator. And she uh, she notices that the woods just go dead silent. You know, the Oz effect, like you are describing with what you saw. And she sees movement out of the corner of her eye and she looks at the edge of the tree and she sees basically what looks like looking through saran wrap. Yes, it's I like recall that. It's a shimmer in the air and she's, she thinks her eyes are tired. Is there something wrong with me? Why am I so unfocused? But then this thing moves and it really is, like you mentioned, it's like the movie Predator where something's cloaked. Now, she has her phone with her, so she takes a photo 
and immediately this thing vanishes. Did well, she even, get anything on the photo? I can't recall. Well, the weird thing about the photo is that it, it was a weird... She showed it to her husband. Yeah, it's Bruce. You're right, Bruce McAbee. And, uh, who, ironically, by the way, is an optical physicist. Yeah, and he noticed that the resolution of that particular photo was very strange. Like, all of the other photos taken from her phone are, like, what, 720p or something. Yep. And this one was only, like, it was a weird resolution. It was, like, 528 by 400. It was a very strange resolution. It was the only photo in her entire camera roll that had this resolution, and there was nothing on it. Isn't that So it's weird? like this thing distorted the technology itself. But yeah, she couldn't take a photo of it. It just vanished as soon as she went to click. So is much of your uh, work today going to focus on those sorts of encounters, is it? Well, Sam, uh, the reason I mentioned that is because Sam had her own encounter with a creature like this, but it wasn't in the woods. It was in her kitchen. Oh. And this led her onto a quest and she started, you know, listening to all these podcasts and doing all this research. And it's really kind of fleshed out book with research. She has a lot of references and I'm going to be mentioning a bunch of stories she's dug up. But she um, is convinced that the the story of the green man, the archetype of the green man, could be what's behind these kinds of encounters and could be what's behind missing four-on-one encounters yes. as well. Oh, okay, well then it seems like our work is going to dovetail quite nicely today because, you know, I, after this particular incident, I did, and it was odd, right, because I didn't think anything about it at the time. It's so typical of people that have these sorts of encounters. I just went, oh, that's kind of odd, and I went to bed. And it wasn't until <laughs> I got up in the morning and I was like, what the hell was what, that? What the hell was that? Like, that actually wasn't normal. That was that was really highly strange. And um, of How course- you didn't call me? Because I don't know. I don't know why, what I did that night. I honestly, I, I feel really like, not saying I was controlled or anything like that, but I do feel like I just behaved in odd fashion. I like that you didn't call me. <laughs> I'll make sure I do this. Because I would have been, no, I would have been like, okay, can can we talk about this in the morning? <laughs> ben, there's Grace here. They're at the back of the house. I want to talk to you. What, oh, hang up. <laughs> no, so what I did is I, I, I went a little bit further because I wanted to look into the idea of there being invisible presences on this earth. And, you know, and the reason why I got to that is because that that flashing in the eye really grabbed my attention because it seems like certain people, you know, like Krista pointed out, maybe antennas. Uh, John Keel actually many, many years ago in Saga magazine, like in an article he published in the 1960s, I think it was 1967, he described this concept of the contact D syndrome. And, you know, it really is this factor that there are a lot of people out there that seem to be completely immune to any type of uh, phenomenon, any type of unusual phenomenon. They just don't experience it. They don't see it, which possibly adds, obviously, to their skepticism because they've never had an experience. They've never seen something. So they completely rationalize it because it's just not within their field of experience. But for other people, it seems like people are attuned to certain phenomena and we're not entirely sure why. It could have something to do with what's described as being like window areas, which is, you know, said so these are locations where it seems like there's a, an increased incidence of activity taking place. We've often looked at it from the idea that maybe it's a interdimensional rift. It's more likely to allow things to pass through. But in other circumstances, Keel has even you know, looked at the possibility that this could just have an elevation, like these particular areas could have an elevation in magnetic activity. And that magnetic activity, for example, might change or heighten the senses of certain people that uh, I guess their brain is sitting on a frequency which taps into this kind of stuff. And that's why you have, because it's not actually interdimensional. It's that we actually exist in a reality where we're surrounded by all of these things 
all of the time and you have to be attuned to it. You have to be in a certain state to see it, which is why, for example, people that engage in, uh, you know, utilizing hallucinogens may see sorts of things. People that engage in trance or meditation might be able to see these things. People have spontaneous out-of-body experiences. It's because you get attuned to the actual reality, the actual nature, the menagerie of entities and beings and unusual phenomena that's surrounding us. But one factor he pointed out in this particular article from Saga magazine was that uh, these people often experience some type of flash. They get a flash. They have some type of experience. Now, he's reported before on the idea of the phantom flashes. And sometimes it's just been something as simple as a person, like these stories I told you before, will see a flash and all of a sudden they see a UFO appear. Yeah, but over the years we've covered cases where people will see like a bright red flash in the sky where the entire sky is just suddenly filled with light and then it's gone in a moment, like a giant camera flash. Giant, yeah, absolutely And we've had uh, listeners email in and share their experiences where they've seen that, experienced that. Exactly. Well, there's also reports that he's found over the years where it becomes extreme. Like, for example, there was the, the phantom flashes and this would be people that had previously seen a UFO but then would be walking down the street and then there would be a man in black style character that would flash them. Then they became extremely boldened though because there would be stories. There was one I was reading today of a family that encountered a man in black but they encountered a group of men in black. I think it was three of them that set up like an old style box camera like an 1890s box camera, complete with gunpowder and everything, out in their front lawn, set fire to it to obviously create a massive flash. And then just the family's looking at the window going, what the hell is this? The men in black just stare at them, close up their equipment and then disappear. Like adding to this high strangeness, there's nothing actually that takes place. It's like an element of, it's not it's even intimidating. intimidating. You know, it, it is intimidating, but it's more than that as well. It's almost like it acts as a way to spark that frequency. It acts as a way to possibly push people to be more in tune to have further encounters later on, because a lot of these people do end up having encounters later on. And it peaked. So he pointed out, and we know that John Keel was really good at looking at the stat side of phenomena. Like, remember how I said that he noted that a lot of phenomena seem to occur on Wednesdays for whatever reason, we're not entirely sure. But then he also noted that UFO phenomena and UFO flaps in particular, they seem to operate on four-year cycles. Like, you'll have a peak in a trough that's occurring on four-year cycles, but then you'd have a massive spike every 19 years. This is what kind of happens with this stuff. And I wonder, because, you know, I've, I've often speculated saying, well, is UFO activity dying down? Is it being reported less? Why is this happening? It simply could be because it's operating on this certain kind of schedule. Mm-hmm. But the schedule is connected to astrological phenomena because he pointed out that it seems like there's an increase in sightings when there's an increase in solar activity. This solar activity, whether it's causing an influence upon magnetic fields, which is causing people to become more attuned, we don't know exactly what the mechanism is. It seems to be associated with that. The other thing was when there was strange activity associated with Jupiter. When Jupiter had certain expulsions of energies or rays or something like that, it would also seemingly coincide with flaps and reports of people experiencing high strangeness. And what I mean by high strangeness, it's not just seeing a nuts and bolts style UFO in the sky. It's actually experiencing things like invisible entities invading your home, you know, uh, face-to-face encounters with reptilian-style entities, uh, things that are not just simply, you know, could be explained away like what I had Mm. of it being potentially bats that are flying outside creating light. It's something more than that. And this is where we get to the 1967 flap of the Invos. And the Invos are quite 
Interesting. Sounds like a very Australian name, the Invo. It's like we've taken something and shortened it. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's like the Invo, mate. The Ambos. Yeah, the Ambos, the Invos. They get into your house, mate. No, this was an epidemic that happened in the 1967 to 1968 period where many people who were, you know, uh, witnessing UFOs, but more particular people that were directly involved in UFO research seemingly attracted an invasion of their homes by some type of weird entity. Now, we have, you know, spoken in the past of of people experiencing poltergeist-like activity after they've seen a UFO. But this was even more extreme than that. This was beyond poltergeist activity. There was one family in West Virginia, for example, who over a series of nights saw these low-flying UFOs. Like it was a series of nights that these things appeared over their house. Every time these things appeared over their house, it was like something was dropped into their home because they started seeing invisible entities running around. And when I mean seeing them, it was like they were seeing the symptoms of these invisible entities that were in their home. They would unlock doors. They would slam kitchen cabinets. They would cause confusion for the family. They would also cause, it would be contagious. It would move into people's, the neighboring homes. And this phenomenon really took off. Now it got to the point where car alarms would start going off and they'll go out and check their car. There'd be nothing wrong with their car. As soon as they walked inside, the invos would then open and slam a locked car door. Now keeping this kind of I guess it's like a heightened state that people would get into. Isn't this just John Keel's term for poltergeist activity? No, it's it's different because it was always associated with UFO activity and it came to a, a massive peak in 1967. It was like 19... There's been plenty of other reports that people have had transient poltergeist activity that's occurred in their homes after they've seen a UFO. And it could be things, you know, apporting, things being knocked over, that kind of stuff. This was sustained, uh, disturbing phenomena that caused some people, like some people were so traumatized by this that it caused them to move home. Like they couldn't get rid of it. Although in some circumstances, one, when people moved, the phenomenon moved with them and it came with them. But the other factor in this is that there appeared to be these two main factors, sorry. One was that they always stank of rotten eggs. So it had that hydrogen sulfide kind of smell. And some people even got to the point where it was an inverse kind of relationship where if they smelt that smell in their home, they knew that they were going to see a UFO flying over their house at night. And they did. Indeed, they did. Uh, then for other people, um, they found that these invos, like they described that not only was stuff being knocked around in their house and then they would kind of adjust to it because obviously you get used to whatever you're being exposed to and they weren't fearful of it, to the point where people started running into things, like they would run into a mass of some kind. Then people started hearing them breathing. And these invos appeared to have trouble breathing in our atmosphere. They were making this very loud, audible gasping sound as if they were choking for air as they're moving through the house. In fact, one UFO researcher was hounded so much by these heavy breathing things. And it was almost like they could only spend a certain amount of time in our atmosphere because this one particular researcher had started off very kind of banal, a few objects moving around, nothing that scary, to the point where her home was inundated with these invos, with these invisible entities. But she said that the heavy breathing got so loud that one particular afternoon, she heard them having a quarrel at the back. Like there was some type of quarrel going on. She couldn't see them, but she could hear it. So she went and got a bucket of water and threw it on them. And doing so, it caused this wild commotion. Like it was like something was rolling about in her backyard. And then it disappeared and the phenomenon stopped. Now, I thought about this because I thought, well, hang on a second. Is it that people are just simply being, 
you know, um, are they being monitored? Is that what's happening? But then why, if they're being monitored, like if it's a men in black style kind of thing where people are seeing UFOs and they're being intimidated, they're UFO researchers, they're being intimidated to stop. Why is it that in some circumstances they can smell the phenomenon and they experience the phenomenon before UFOs arrive? Like there seems to be something kind of strange going on here. And it seems like some people may be targets because they simply looked at the phenomenon. You start looking at it, it starts looking back. And it coincides actually with a post that was published by Paul Seaburn on our website this week talking about Brazil's Roswell. And of course, you know, we had James Fox on the show only very recently. Yeah. And obviously this new documentary that's come out, has, you know, Moment of Contact, has caused a lot of discussion online. There's a certain you know, number of factors here that have really getting, been getting people's attention and things that we've kind of overlooked, which we... Obviously, it, it's fascinating, but I didn't really think about it. So what this is, there was one thing that came up in that documentary over and over again, is that those beings, they stank. Like there was that smell about them, yep. the sulfur, ammonia smell that they had to them. Like so many other reports. Yeah, exactly. So many reports have that. Uh, it was also that they had these bulging red eyes. And remember how they seemed like they were distressed. And in some circumstances, it seemed like they were having trouble breathing. Now, there's been some speculation here that, in fact, even James Fox himself has retweeted some of this stuff because it's an interesting concept where there was, uh, there was a commenter on Reddit who claims to have done a lot of research into ammonia-like compounds, and they have claimed that there's a very simple ammonia-like compound called aniline. Aniline is the simplest aromatic uh, amine, and there's a possibility that these beings may be some type of being that uh, emanates this ammonia-based substance, right? Now, this is fine, right? They must have been in an ammonia-based atmosphere when they're on their craft, but when they crashed their craft, and this is, you know, a hypothesis, but it's it does tie in with what John Keel's describing 40, 50 years yeah, ago right. of not being able to breathe and the smell that was happening because remember how um, in the documentary it was described that when that UFO came down that it released some type of substance, like a chemical substance that was in kind of like a, a, a circumference around the crash area, but no one knew exactly what it was. It would make sense that it would be some type of ammonia-like substance, which would have resulted in a chemical fire. Now, the ETs that survived obviously fled the crash, and we know that they fled into the town because it was witnessed by multiple people. It also caused the death of the guy, of the army officer yeah, that, that picked, picked up that being. Up. Well, if you're exposed to these ammonia-like substances, it actually can cause things like uh, a drop in red blood cells. It can uh -huh. cause uh, you know, damage to your immune system. So that would be consistent with what happened to that guy, how they couldn't work out why he was dying, but he died from seemingly a completely removed immune system, totally compromised immune system. That would be consistent with exposure to these chemicals. Now, um, the ETs, they would have been alive, but they would have been suffocating in our atmosphere, which would have resulted in the bulbous red eyes because their skin was oxidizing. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and decomposing into an oily mass. And this is what was said, that they there was multiple witnesses. So they could have had beautiful blue eyes. They, exactly. They, it was like that scene out of uh, the original Total Recall, where they're blown out and there's no oxygen yeah. in their eyes. This is exactly the same thing that was happening. They're suffocating in our atmosphere. And I thought, like, that's something to think of. Like, it's really something to think of. So the whole idea with these UFO researchers being bothered by these things, as reported by Keel... It doesn't really make sense. Like, why would you send one of your species down to intimidate someone if they're just going to suffocate? Okay. Because Give them a spacesuit. That's a good point. <laughs> 
there's plenty of reports of beings being witnessed to have some type of spacesuit yeah. that is like a a breathing apparatus. There's a whole heap of reports of them having like a. And obviously, it's from the 1950s and 1960s, so it's got that kind of sci-fi effect to it. But there's reports, there's humanoid reports out there that were described by John Keel of people experiencing entities that apparently were wearing spacesuit types of apparatuses with a breathing apparatus with a hose coming out of it of some type of fishbowl kind of helmet. So this is when they're visible. So this is when you can go a little bit deeper into this phenomenon and wonder, well, is it that there's some type of presence on Earth that's been here for a long time? It's been here for a long time. It knows that humanity is here. But when we start looking at it, and we didn't really start looking at it heavily until the 1940s. Like it wasn't until we saw Foo Fighters over Germany in 1944 when the activity really got into, or the, the knowledge of the activity got into the general populace. And that's when you start having UFO researchers popping up everywhere. You've got a whole heap of people that are particularly fascinated by this. So let me give you an example, though. There are people that have been intimidated by men in black type creatures. Like we know this. There was, you know, um, Albert Bender that had experiences. Gray Barker wrote about him and flying saucers and the three men. But I want to reference something that I, I, I didn't actually recall this, but I, I wanted to highlight something for you. There was uh, an experience that Bender had himself where he recalls being in a dreamlike state, right? And he claims that he encountered a nine foot tall entity in a laboratory that he somehow knew was hidden beneath Antarctica. Now, what? during this experience, <laughs> the exalted one, which is what you know Bender referred to this being as, told him that it will surprise you to learn that beneath the surface of your planet, far down in cavernous cities, live creatures that are able to make themselves invisible when they come to the surface. They roam the surface of your planet quite frequently and like to cause fright to cover their stealing of certain things, and then they take them back with them. Mole people. Well, well, yeah, okay, but maybe mole people, but invisible mole people, Ben. Yes. There's a difference. Who are stealing knickknacks <laughs> from UFO researchers' homes. Well, they are. This is what might actually be happening because you do have, again, reports of people that have collected samples. You know, apparently you've got uh, you know, pieces of craft that have come down. You've got extraterrestrial artifacts. There's reports out there of people encountering these things and all of a sudden them disappearing from their homes. Didn't I cover this on the recent Plus extension from last week? Oh no, that was the, maybe the week before. But I did all these reports of the the underground legends. Yes, that ultimately led to the mold people. Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly right. And in fact, you know, it appears that with these entities, and it reminds me again of you know James Fox's story, or not his story, but his documentary. But the story that was in there, that those beings, right, that came down, Ben. It seems like there was a witness that claimed that there was some type of craft, a second flying craft that was searching for them, Mm. trying to retrieve them, trying to recover them. And in fact, I've got a story that's very similar to that. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And this is why maybe we don't have any type of, you know, major physical evidence because whatever these entities are, whether or not they're underground, interdimensional, I don't know what they are, they retrieve the materials that get taken by people that have experiences with them. So, for example, there's two particular stories out there that 
you know, I, I, I was reminded of with these sorts of, you know, concepts. One was the story of a woman uh, who was in the United States. I don't remember exactly what location she was in, but she describes seeing, uh, she had a pond that was just outside her property. And by pond, I mean, essentially a lake, like she called it a pond, but it was a lake. Now she wanders out her, of her property one evening, seemingly, um, under some type of control, but she sees this UFO, this typical UFO saucer-shaped craft that's hovering over the lake. It's got a blue light coming down from beneath it, and it's seemingly something is ejected from it, or there's some type of, I don't know if it's a transporter, teleporter, something like that. But she suddenly looks onto the ground and sees something approaching her. And in a very 1950s sci-fi style, she describes this thing running towards her with its hands up, and it's got four fingers, it's webbed, it's about four and a half feet tall, it's wearing some type of weird outfit, but it's, and it's humanoid, but it's not human by any means. It's like a giant frog. But she describes it as being like a frog type amphibious type of entity. So, Kermo. <laughs> so in a very, very, this is the way I like ufology. This is what people should do. Uh, she grabs her shotgun. She runs inside, grabs her shotgun and unloads a shotgun into this thing as it's approaching. Excellent. And she kills it. Brilliant. She kills it. Like she, she blows it apart. She kills it. Now, uh, she then goes and gets her husband because her husband comes outside and says, what the hell is going on? What are you firing at, woman? <laughs> What's this? Yeah. And she's like, oh, she did. She's like, I got this thing off my property. And so she's knocked this thing out. Uh, not just knocked it out. It's dead. And so they decide, rather than calling the authorities, and I kind of don't blame them, rather than creating a fuss of any kind, uh, they dig a trench and throw it in. They <laughs> throw this thing in a trench. So they throw it in a trench. They cover it up. You know, the spade at the end is like, dunk, dunk, and it's done. It's all good. They go inside Just and have go, a cup of tea. Go on with their yeah, day. They go on with their day, you know. So they go back inside until later that evening, they claim that they hear a hum. Like they hear this hum that's increasing in pitch to a point of irritance. So they come outside to see what the hell's going frog on. Frog woman looking for her husband. Close. There is another UFO that explodes out of the pond. Like it just explodes up out of the pond comes over, lands, and from it emerges more frog people, right? So they run inside because, like, what, what the hell? Like, there's no matter how many shotgun shells we have, it's not, we're not going to be able to stop all these frog people. They watch the frog people go over, hover over the top of the grave, <laughs> hold their hands out, and we're using some type of apparatus. Some kind of frog reiki. They bring the frog up. <laughs> The dead frog. And it's report in the report, it's like the, the frog's dead. Like, it's no doubt. They're not resurrecting it. They're not bringing it okay, back to life. Right. Like, it's a dead body, but they're retrieving their body. Like, they're retrieving the evidence. They put this thing on. They all walk back aboard this UFO. The UFO pisses off into the night sky. Nothing else ever happens again. What, no what the frog hell? revenge. No. <laughs> well, maybe that's the thing. Like, maybe they were like, well, you know, we shouldn't have allowed that to happen. We should have had better armor. Um but it coincides, though. There was another report that I got into of, of a young man by the name of Mark. Now, Mark uh, was on the outskirts of a little town in Nevada, and uh, he would just do what kids did you know, back in the 60s and 70s, and he went out with his friend one day, and they were going through the hills and just you know, having a great day outside you know, before there was computers and just getting out and having fun. And on this particular day, they came to this uh, large kind of hill, and there was a crevice in this hill. And they kind of had to squeeze through this crevice because it was a little bit tight. Now, they managed to squeeze their way through this crevice and they go inside and they go deeper and deeper and deeper into this cave kind of system. And there must be some light coming through because it's not described as to whether or they have torches. And I doubt they do if they're just out, you know, riding their bikes or exploring. And as they get deeper, they come, they claim, to a heavy, rusty 
door. Like it's a heavy iron style rusty door. It doesn't look futuristic. It doesn't look to be technologically advanced. It's like an old, it's not even like a gold mine, but that's what they kind of assume at first. Does it have a swastika and an eagle on it? (laughs) No, nothing like that. And no weird bell shaped UFO. No, it's not like that. But they claim that as they look at the door, they look down and next to the door is this long, what appears to be um, aluminum rod. And this this rod, um, they pick it up and it's extremely light, like extremely so in comparison to what you'd expect. Like when you, And he kind of like almost throws it because he was expecting it to be a lot heavier. And he says that there's some type of insignia. There's like a knob on the end and in the knob is impressed some type of insignia. It's not described as to what it is, but it's something that is quite foreign. Like it's something that you wouldn't be able to really describe. And maybe that's why he hasn't. So um, he and his friend, like, this is this is really weird, when they say from the darkness, something starts moving, like a mass starts moving in the distance. And it's not, not too far from, but far enough that they can't make out what it is kind of in the, in the dark space they're in. They both claim it's a reptilian. They both claim it's like a seven to nine foot tall style, uh, humanoid, but large, muscular, green scale. Swinging tail swinging tail style reptilian, right? So they get the hell out of there. Like they, they run, they run and run and run and run and they get out of there. And as I described before, it was difficult for them to get in, oh, right? I remember this story and they take the wand back home to show their mom, That's right, they? Yeah. that's right. So they get out, but as they get, they see the reptilian in the daylight. It's like 10 o'clock in the morning, 10.30 in the morning. Where was this again? This is in Nevada. I don't right, know the exact right. town, but it's so in I remember Nevada. it as desert in my head. Yeah, it was deserty. Yeah, it was deserty. And they run, but as they run, they look back. And as they look back, they see the reptilian. It can't get out through the, the crevice mm. because it's so large. Like it's got so much mass. So they run home and you're right. They go home and he tells his mum. And his mum and his mum's like, oh, come on, that's a silly story. He's like, no, here it is. And he presents the rod to her. She's like, what the hell is this? This is kind of weird, right? So she um, you know, takes the rod and puts it somewhere in the house. I don't know exactly where. Uh, and things calm down. Until that evening, she's awoken to her son, Mark, like shaking her. Like she's getting shaken. She's like, oh, what is it? He's like, mum, mum, there's something trying to get into my bedroom. And he's like, she says, what? what? What are you talking about? He's like, no, I think there's someone trying to break in. So she goes into his bedroom. When she goes into his bedroom, um, she, she can hear it. She can hear like some scratching on the window. Now the window's up high, right? So she goes up and there's curtains there. So you can't see anything. And she's expecting to see an intruder, someone pulling a prank, something like that. So she's going to scare it. So she reefs the curtains open. And I'm like, what do you want? And as she does, it's the reptilian. He's standing there and she describes seeing its face, its yellow cat-like eyes, a reptilian style eyes, the same, everything that her son had described in the fleeting glimpse of what he, she, he had seen fleeing from this thing. Uh, she describes exactly the same thing. And it's almost like the thing kind of smirks at her. It's not entirely a smirk, but it's kind of like, a, like you know now. And it disappears. It's gone. Now, I don't know what happened to the rod, but the influence here is that this being was coming to retrieve the rod. I think from that, my memory of that story, she made them or she went with them and they just left it outside somewhere. You're right, actually. That's a good point. Yes, you and are the right. the activity stopped because it came back several times. It did come back several times. You, the story. you are right. They went back to the cave, I recall, and they left it at the front of the cave. Something like that. And that stopped the activity. But these are examples of where it seems like these beings are present on this earth. They're not, you know, outside this earth. They're present on the earth. And is they... <laughs> it real? Well, speaking of is it real, right? It just so happened this week that as I was uh, preparing for the show, I picked up a copy of the Damu Chronicles, Emails with the Sumerian God. <laughs> what is this? This is by Rocco Paolo. 
And I must say, emails with a with Sumerian, Sumerian god. god. Now I must say that when I picked this up, I was expecting a kind of uh, Doddleston messages, perhaps yeah. kind of experience. It, it's nothing of the sort. It, it's nothing of the sort at all. Uh, but it does coincide with what I was reading from John Keel because going back to John Keel and uh, in some of his writings, and I'll link actually to a book which has a collection, just a, a random assortment of of his writings over the years. But when he was talking about contact T syndrome. Um, this was people that seemed to seemingly get attuned to certain frequencies, right? And that that frequency is the paranormal frequency. Like once you're on it, it's almost like you can't get off it. This and, is new. How did we miss this in 2020? Uh, well, it's probably not a bad thing that we missed. <laughs> I, no, hang on. Well, it's I, only 80 well, pages. <laughs> I, I, I sh- I'm not going to bash it. Uh, I will link to it in the show notes so you can Just check it out it. for yourself. No, it's okay. I'll explain in a moment as to why I didn't end up going all the way through with it. Um, but ultimately what I was saying with the, with the John Keel stuff is that one of the phenomenon that people had, um, once they're attuned to the frequency is that a lot of people have experiences with phantom hands with with what you were saying, but yeah, we'll say it, phantom gropers. It seems like a bunch, and this doesn't seem to even have any type of connection to the flap of the invos. It's just that they will mm. uh, be in bed at night and then feel a hand that will grab them you know, on the bed covers. A lot of the times on the head, tap them on the head. When you go to the page for this book and it shows you what people have bought who have also bought this book, it's just all toilet bidets. <laughs> It's like a page of toilet bidets. What? So people who buy this book enjoy toilet bidets. Are they According reading to it Amazon? Or they get squirt? Is that <laughs> I what's don't know. I don't know. going on here? What does it mean? Okay. Yeah, what does it mean? What does it mean? What's the, the hidden esoteric meaning behind that? Well, maybe it is something to do with the book because, um, okay, to give you a very, very brief synopsis of, of what this book is, but it does kind of you know, set up, uh, I guess it t- coincides with what I've been talking about. Essentially... Rocco uh, had what he describes as a conflicted upbringing because he grew up in a very uh, apparently religious setting. And for him, anything that was paranormal, anything that fit into this kind of topic of aliens, UFOs, that kind of stuff, uh, it was demonic. Like it was a demonic kind of activity. But as he he found himself being fascinated by that kind of stuff, like he found himself fascinated by ghosts. And, this, and I don't think that that's that unusual. I mean, I know a heap of staunch Catholics that believe in reincarnation, you know, psychic phenomena, that kind of stuff, aliens. So I don't see why that would restrict Also, you. with this activity, believing that it's demonic, even if that isn't true, is a good way to approach it. That's a good point. Yeah, it because keeps you covered. It does, because we have noticed that there does seem to be more of a, a negative, dark element to this kind of stuff. But he says that as a young child, right, he had this really disturbing experience where his family would, uh, like, he had siblings, right? And the siblings would wake up yelling and screaming because a hand would touch them on the head. Okay, in the night, like a hand would touch them. And do you recall, Ben, I told you years ago that I never had this experience, but my brother used to wake up screaming because yeah. a thumb would touch him on the head at night. And it wasn't just once or twice. It happened multiple times. And of course, it would wake the entire house up and everyone would go and have a look. And my, then... my son had a nightmare the other night. And really? when I came to his bedroom and asked him what was happening, he's freaking out. And he said, the man, I don't want the man. I don't want the man. The man's coming. The man's coming. I said, what's going on? Where's the man? He said, he jumped to the wrong island. <laughs> What are you talking about? And then he went back to sleep. Um, my son just has nightmares about snakes. But great. That's just, just fantastic. <laughs> More practical. Yeah. Um, but with with this particular experience, right, uh, he describes that it was kind of the same as what my brother experienced, that the whole family would go and look and there was never anything there, except on one particular evening it happened to him. And he says that he woke up, this hand had touched him on the head in his sleep, 
uh, obviously had jolted him from his sleep. He looks over and there's a massive clawed, green, gnarly, reptilian-style hand, like disembodied hand that's at the top of his bed. And he said that uh, as he watched, like he's trying to understand what it is and coming from his point of reference, his point of reference is, oh, it's demonic. See how it like triggers something in his head? Because he goes, oh, but it's not red. Like demons are red. Like this is because this is what he's been taught, right? Mm. So he knows, like he insists this wasn't a dream or hallucination, which was created by his frame of reference, because if it was, it would have been red. Like the brain would have created it for him to be red. And he's like, no, it was green. And what was odd about it, is this hand slithered away. Like it slithered away what? into the floor. Like the hand and arm, gone and disappeared. So this kind of, I think, set up an ongoing kind of um, set of experiences that Rocco was going to have because Skip forward into the future and Rocco starts working for some, I don't know, an actuary firm or something. Um, it's just a standard kind of office business, right? And he makes friends with this guy named JJ. And he strikes up this friendship with JJ. And as they're, they're talking, they start talking about, you know, mysterious universe topics. Like that's what they, their friendship kind of, you know, centers around. They mm-hmm. talk about these things, things that they're reluctant to talk to other people about. JJ has just got this absolute hatred for the greys. Like he just absolutely hates them, despises them. He just, and he's right. Like they're horrible little things. Um, but Rocco's kind of at a loss to understand why is, you know, my impression from this. But he describes that, you know, back and forth, they're having this uh, kind of, you know, chat about all this kind of phenomenon, not talking to anyone else about it. And one day there's this coincidental thing where he, JJ moves departments. And when JJ moves departments, uh, somehow Rocco was asked to do some type of audit on JJ. And it doesn't really have any importance on it, but it causes him to call up JJ, who he hasn't spoken to in a long time. And JJ is excited to speak to him. And he's like, oh, hey, look, um, I just got to let you know, I just give you a heads up that uh, you're being audited and I'm the one that has to do the audit. And JJ is like, oh, I don't care. I've got nothing to hide. And indeed, he doesn't have anything to hide. It just happens to turn out that he's an exceptional salesman. Uh, All of it's very innocent. Like, it just really has nothing to do with anything, except for, I don't know if it's a week, a few days later, uh, JJ contacts Rocco and he's like, oh, come on, man. Like, why are you doing this? This is ridiculous. You have to stop it with this. And Rocco's going, what are you talking about? What, what the hell are you talking about? He's like, you sent me the email. You sent me an email, which, you know, it's like, I, th- I know you think you're funny and it's, you know, full of all this paranormal bullshit. And it's just, and he's like, I've got no idea what you're talking about. And JJ's kind of taken aback. He's like, but you're the only person I talk to about this. Why would you send me an email like this? It's just ridiculous. And he says, what email is it? Send it to me. So Rocco does. He gets this email that comes through. And the email is this apparent interdimensional uh, entity that very plainly sets out uh, the details of the origins of humanity. Uh, It starts fitting in because Rocco, obviously coming up from a Christian uh, upbringing, you know, was trying to get his head around evolution. He's around this kind of stuff and he never could really buy. All the answers are in this email. And this email apparently comes from Damu, who's a Sumerian god. So is it damu at gmail.com? I don't know that's exactly right. So the address isn't included. The address isn't included. Come on. So you know why I... St- okay, so I, I, I listened to the email. Uh, I read the email. And the first email basically was this being telling them both to stop it. They both have to stop. They both have to have nothing to do with it. Um, because uh, basically what happened was there is a reptilian presence here on Earth. They are all around us all the time. Uh, the reason why this reptilian presence is on Earth is because... Uh, humanity is not actually humanity. We uh, were here kind of by accident, all due to the asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs. 
Okay, so just okay. bear with me on this because it starts crossing into this weird fourth dimensional stuff. There's a lot of me- yeah, metaphysics thrown in. Uh, but essentially what happened was is that there was a race of beings that look like they're reptilian, but they're not reptiles. Like they stress that they're not reptiles, they're not dinosaurs, there's there's something else. But they owned Earth. They had Earth. And on Earth, they created uh, food, right? They were like we have cattle. We were their cattle, but it not us, right? They just called them the anthropoids. Like it was just humans, like husks, like the Steiner stuff we were talking about recently, where there's no actual human ego. soul in it. So there's no ego in it. It's just just so uh, there's just a bunch of meat monkeys walking around. There's a bunch of NPCs just wandering around, right? That aren't doing anything. What are they herded in like just, fields? Yeah, or? yeah. Well, they just they're allowed to because uh, apparently this being expresses that we don't eat them. There is another race that look like us that do eat them. We don't eat them. Uh, they're filled with toxins and they're like, not organic, man. And so they don't eat them. But what they do drain is their energy, like their essence. Okay. Like they drain on their energy. And what happened was is that everything was going tickety-booing along perfectly until that asteroid struck the Earth. Now, when the asteroid struck the Earth, it essentially ripped a hole in space-time and granted access to a group of entities that are kind of a species with amnesia. Us, like the core, the soul of what of what we are. So right? what we were just floating around where? We were flo- in another dimension. Okay. Do, what s- were we doing in this other dimension? It's not described. We were just floating around in another dimension. We were with amnesia. We didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know where to go. And we were kind of like spiritual, I get the impression. We infested those anthropoid bodies. We infested that cattle. So all of a sudden, you've got these anthropoid cattle. Why would we get in dirty cattle bodies? <laughs> If we were just chilling out, floating around in another dimension, why would we do that? I don't know, but humanity is born. That is what happened. Okay. And ever since then, humanity has been a problem for these beings because we've kind of taken over now. We're like, oh, so many of them came through and it pushed them into another reality. And now humanity's here and all these anthropoids that they genetically engineered for food were now infested by the spirits of humanity. Have you heard of a book called The Lemurian Scrolls? No, it's, I don't think so. It's by an Indian guru. His name is Satguru Sivaya Subramuniyaswami. And I think he published this in the 80s, I believe. But he claims that, like, he's, he's, a, he's a yoga guru, right? Right. He claims that one day he bought a, he found a statue in the market and there was some kind of heavenly power to this statue. So he haggled with the guy and he bought it and moved it to his ashram. And he's actually in, I think it was in Hawaii, he had an ashram in Hawaii. And he moves this statue and he said after the statue was moved to his ashram, he got his followers to do some kind of ceremony. And this did something to his third eye, like his third eye awakened and he could basically, a librarian appeared before him. Like this, a librarian. Yeah, this old librarian, and this old librarian had all these books behind him, right? And this guy would see in his mind's eye, this librarian would basically turn around and pull this book off the shelf. You mean like a Kashik record style? Kind of, yeah. And then he'd open this book with all these strange symbols in it and start reading it to um, what's his name, <laughs> Savaya, and this this guy, this Indian guy. Would, would actually understand everything this guy was saying. And it turned out that it was the history of human beings on this planet. And basically, in a nutshell, it's very similar to what you described, where human beings were in another dimension, uh, he says, from the Pleiades. But in energetic kind of form? Yeah, not in yeah. physical form. Yep. And they had basically reached a limit to their spiritual development and they couldn't go any further and so they needed a hot planet where there was basically like chaos going on so they found earth 
and over time they inhabited meat bodies. <laughs> it's the same thing. <laughs> and became human beings. It's the same idea, exactly the same yeah, thing. It's they a... came from this ethereal form and then they entered bodies on this planet. Well, I have to wonder if these, whoever is the source of these emails, and I'll give it to Rocco to his credit, that he's not completely indulging in it. Like he does say, look, I don't know, you know where these have come from. I don't know which persons are involved, uh, but it does suggest whoever has written them uh, does have some type of superior knowledge or something. The reason why I, I hit the eject button and I bailed out is because as these emails start coming through and there's a whole heap of back and forth that Rocco has with this entity, uh, this entity does appear to know <laughs> things about him. Damu at gmail.com. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Damu at gmail.com. Um, basically, he describes that, look, reality isn't real. You're living in a hologram that was kind of generated for our cattle, mm. essentially. Uh, and the whole thing that's keeping everything together at the moment is love. Yeah. <laughs> it starts to distort if you play them all at once. I won't do that again. Not surprising that the answer is love. I know. It's, it's an easy way to get out of a story that you've created. Oh, it is. Like it, it is. And then later on, so I skipped forward because I was like, oh, God, I can't. I just can't. Like, I just can't. If it's love, I'm like, oh. But uh, later on, I skipped to this chapter where it turns out that JJ was the one sending the emails. I'm like, oh, there you oh, go. Oh, it's JJ. There you go, it's JJ. <laughs> but guess what? Here's the plot twist. Now what? skip forward 30 seconds if you want to go and pick up the book. JJ was channeling oh. Damu. And Damu was channeling. This is my. This is what I got from when I flicked through. I could be so, incorrect in my interpretation, but that's what it seems like happened. Sends an email impersonating a Sumerian god, refuses to elaborate, leaves. <laughs> It's the gist of the story. <laughs> and for Rocco, he then understands the entire nature of reality now. So I was like, mm. So that was your day, basically. That was my day. So I thought I just had to, I had to jump out of that. But you know, what I then jumped into was the idea of there being this invisible presence, right? This idea that there are, um, there, there are beings, right? That are here already on earth, uh, whether or not they want to claim us back, uh, whether, well, not us, but you know, there is a possibility that we are just simply cattle for some other species or that, you know, we've engaged in some type of combat with them and we're continuing to be in a hidden war with them. I don't know. But there's this story that I just want to mention that kind of highlights this. And this relates to what happened to Bender. So Bender, you know, um, Albert Bender had all these weird experiences. You know, he was told about these, you know, under, underground cavernous regions where these things were. There's a story that came out about Bender years later as to more why he ended up stopping his research. It was because he was threatened by invisible beings. And it just so happens that... Invos. Invos, Get the right? terminology yeah, right, it's, please. it's invos. So uh, th it happened that he was working with other ufological researchers, which makes sense. Uh, he was getting close to something. We don't know exactly what he was, but he was getting close. He was getting a much better understanding of the ufological you know, mystery and what it is, but he was endangering himself. And he started to step back a little bit when these two researchers said, look, we want to come and come to your house and have a chat with you. And he was like, yeah, yeah, sure, come over. But beforehand, some entity somehow warned Bender and said, you're not to say anything. You're not to communicate with them. You are not to give them any information whatsoever and we'll be watching. And Bender was like, okay, yeah, that's sure, whatever. But he was still obviously intimidated to a point. So these two researchers showed up. And when these researchers showed up, he did have a discussion with them, but he didn't elaborate on anything. I think he was just frightened enough about these otherworldly visitors that he thought, I'm not going to, to do anything about it. And rightly so. 
because he claims in this particular incident where the two researchers were sitting in the house, he looked over to another chair and he said it was this soft upholstered chair which was strangely depressed. There was something or someone sitting in this chair and it wasn't just the chair. It was like the arms had a depression on them. Was there a shimmer? No, but he just said there was an invisible occupant there. And he was like, I knew, like I knew that something had been sent. I'd already been given a warning. Something had been sent to watch this discussion I was having with these other researchers and to intimidate me. And later on, like he, um, when they left, like these other two researchers left, he looked at this thing and he could see it in the chair and he's like, who are you? I demand you, you know, tell me who you are. And he says he got no answer, but he said something approached him and he felt an icy hand grope him on the shoulder. Oh. Like grope him. He turned around because he was terrified of what he was going to get, <laughs> what he was going to confront. And he said he experienced the worst fright of his life. Standing there before him was a being that had materialized. It was 10 feet tall, greenish all over and had a glowing face. Its eyes were glowing. Now, it's the green man. It's the green this man. Is my content. Right, right. He sees this thing. Uh, he passes out when he wakes up because he'd been collecting uh, uh, the stuff from lunch that he'd served up and he had a waste basket. The waste basket was now thrown on the floor from where he'd collapsed. Um, he gets up and he says the entire house stinks of sulfur. Now he looks over to the rug thinking that maybe he's hallucinated this as to where this green man was. There's like perfect burns in the carpet of where something had either materialized oh. or dematerialized. And it was after that 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 was kind of the, the final straw, one of the final straws for Bender where he's like, I'm getting out because he had these invisible entities that were trying to stop him from getting close to the truth. That's cool. Yeah, it's it's really intriguing kind of stuff. So I don't know. I'm, I'm intrigued by this idea of there being this entire menagerie of beings and entities that are around us all the time. They're living in a cohabitation, you know, cohabitation existence with us. Some of them in your house right now. Oh God, I hope. This is the thing where I understand now, because I've always thought about UFO researchers and the ones that do get, I think the smart ones do get out. Like they bail out because I'm like, oh, come on. You know, why are you being such a wuss? Like, why would you bail out? But I think when you have children, like when you have a family, yeah, I understand. This is what a lot of researchers have had. They've had family and their children, their families have been threatened. They get out. Now, don't worry. Are you saying you would stop this show if you had an alien in your house? No, I'd go as far as I could go. I'd go really. But if I must say, though, if there was a presence that did threaten my children, I would. I would get out. I don't feel anything like that at the moment. I don't feel that that will ever happen. Um, I just feel like I'm getting like maybe if the, it could just simply be completely natural and there's nothing to it, or it could just be a little nod from the universe. And my family has a history. My family has a strong history of all this kind of stuff happening. So maybe I'm just slightly on the frequency. My wife's convinced that her dead grandma is uh, visiting us at night. Really? Yeah, because she keeps having dreams about her. And then the other night, our dehumidifier turned on by itself at like two in the morning. <laughs> so she tells me about it and I'm like, oh my God, we've covered all these cases where dehumidifiers... <laughs> Just come on at two in the morning. You know what we need to do? You need to tell you to go, call Aaron. And I'll be like, oh, yeah, like this. Back in 1971, there was a story that came out of South Australia where a family had this dead grandmother in there and then the dehumidifier the came dehumidifier. on. <laughs> it's bad. When you're married to me and I've heard every single paranormal story ever, I'm just like, oh, God. Yeah. Do I have to listen to this? Well, it was like this poor nanny when she's like, oh, I saw this, you know, old lady sitting in the corner. I was like, yeah, whatever. And she's freaked out. <laughs> oh, is that all? That's just a ghost. <laughs> Who cares? Kick its face off. <laughs> 
Well, that dovetailed nicely with what I've got coming up from Perfect. Sam Payne, the green man, god, fairy, or extraterrestrial. And she says, look, as children, we're taught from a young age not to go into the woods alone, be vigilant, bad things can happen there. And all the fairy tale stories, of course, have these same warnings of witches, wolves, and all the other bad things that lurk in forests yes. and in the woods. But the question is, did our ancestors know something that we don't? She asks, were these simply stories to entertain and scare children or were they meant to be something more? And she says these types of warnings and scary stories, they haven't gone anywhere. They're alive today. You can just look at the missing 411 phenomenon, mm. researched by David Politis, to find these stories again. Many people appear to disappear off very easy trails or disappear in the blink of an eye. Uh, many of you have he heard these stories from David over the years. We might share a couple of the uh, fringe ones later on. There's a new documentary that's coming out towards mid-December. Yeah, you so, mentioned this. What's what's the deal? So I think it's, I don't know the exact name, but it's Missing 411, the UFO connection or something like that. I mm -hmm. saw it's being released uh, in mid-December. So, yeah, I mean, it's getting close to the end of the year, but mm -hmm. yeah, hopefully we'll discuss that before the end of the year. Well, once Sam dug into this research, once she discovered this stuff, she was hooked. Like, what the hell is this? What is this missing 411 activity? Where are these people going? Where are their bodies? What is behind it? And she stumbled across an odd, odd encounter of the Glimmer Man, and that's the one I told you at the top of the show, where uh, it was um, Maccabee, mm. Maccabee's wife, Bruce Maccabee's wife, saw that strange thing while she was hunting. And, and why Glimmer that... Man? Do you mean like the, the Predator-style well, shimmering? Yeah, the shimmering is something that's been reported in multiple cases. It's not just hers. There's uh, multiple reports of this kind of shimmer in the air that yes. reveals that something's there, but you can't quite make it out. Like, it's cloaked. Now, again, this story leapt out at Sam because she'd seen something of a similar nature in her kitchen. So she describes her house at the time. There's two large windows. Uh, one was to the front aspect and the other was to the side of the house. And she's standing in a kitchen in front of the window to the side of the house. And she's kind of thinking about what sandwich to make for lunch. And she um, saw movement out of the corner of her eye. And now she has a cat. So she thought, oh, maybe it's the cat's come in. Um, and followed her in to get some food. Hear what you just said, though? She saw something out of the corner of her eye. Yeah. It's like she's on the frequency. Yeah, and she looks down and around, but she can't see anything. And she assumes that the cat must have just gone back out of the kitchen, so she goes back to making the sandwich, and it happens again. There's some kind of movement. And this happens several times, and she's starting to get irritated by it. So she stops making the sandwich and just turns around, and she's staring at the floor of her kitchen, trying to figure out, is it the light reflecting off the blinds or yeah, is it the surface? Like, what am I actually seeing? Yeah, you're trying to rationalize it. And then she saw it move. Oh. And she said, just like other witnesses had said, it looked just like that camouflage effect from the Predator movie. Yet this creature was much smaller and it wasn't humanoid. She said it had eight legs and was arachnid in shape. Oh, it's a spider being. She's got a cloaked Predator spider in her kitchen. An arachnoid. <laughs> an arachno. <laughs> yeah, Australian style. It was the size of a large domestic cat, she said, but again, spider-like in appearance. And she didn't feel any fear. She's obviously shocked, but she was just too confused for fear. Where's, like, what do you use? Like spectral mortine? How do you get rid of it? Well, she just stood there dumbfounded and she wondered if it even knew that she was there because yeah. it almost seemed like it was oblivious. And eventually she said... She said this out loud. Uh, you do know I can see you, right? And she said as soon as she said this, it stopped 
and just whoosh, disappeared. This I read today. <laughs> there was a report. I can't remember where I, where I found it, but I kind of glossed over it. But it was of a guy that um, came downstairs and there were men in black in his house. And the men in black, like they were wearing kind of like uh, rubberized uh, raincoats. Like it looked like human clothing, but they were typical men in black and that they looked gangly and awkward and weird and they stank. And But he was like, what the hell are you doing? And these men in black spun around and was shocked that they could be seen because they thought that they couldn't be seen. Yeah, it's exactly the case with this. So that's when she started to Google, what the hell did I see? And that's when she stumbled across David Pilatus's work and the Hunter's book. But then where would there be a connection between predator spiders and David well, Pilatus? just the glimmer effect, like that story yeah. of Jan Maccabee, that was in David Pilatus's book. Uh, so the question started to roll on, like, what the hell was it, obviously? Why was it in my house? What did it want? Why didn't it seem to notice that I was there or know that I could see it, she said? Is it the same thing that people are seeing while they're in the woods? Are these things linked? So it's questions like this, she said, that got her thinking and led ultimately to the writing of this book. But what led to the green man specifically? Well, that was from our friends, the Newkirks, because she discovered the green man from an episode of Hellier. Oh, and because Hellier did focus a lot on, um, what was the guy's work? It, was, it wasn't... It uh, was Terry Wrist. Not Terry Wrist. <laughs> no, no, but what was the... Uh, it was Brandon, Jim Brad, Brandon, right? And the Green Man. Yeah, so it was season two, episode four. That was called Your Green Man, uh, which essentially set her on the path because within this episode, Greg Newkirk, he sent an email from a lady named Amy. And within the body of this email... This Amy details an event that sounds truly horrific. So she and her partner decided to take their RV and go camping for a few days. They went deep into the woods in Kentucky, set up camp, and they woke up in the dead of the night to horrified, like horrible screams for help, like some woman shrieking uh, that she was being murdered. Now, Amy was horrified and wanted to go and help, but her boyfriend essentially said, whoa, 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 we're not going anywhere. We don't have any weapons. We, we might get hurt ourselves. Like, we just have to lay low. Like, this is too dangerous. So, essentially, they waited it out until finally the screaming stopped. Like, it was silenced. It's a horrible story. Um, and the next day, she was determined to find out what had happened. So, she eventually started to go into the woods towards where she heard this scream. And according to the email that was sent to Greg Newkirk, she came across this cabin. And... She wasn't aware of it. She, like, she was local to the area. She hadn't seen this. Um, but it had a locked military-grade gate, caged windows, but it was just this dilapidated old cabin. It didn't really make sense. Why would it have such security? Now, she was determined to find out what the hell was going on, so she supposedly crawled under the fence, broke into the cabin. Ah, uh, bad idea. Well, that's where I'm like, you know, is, you it, crimes. is it real? <laughs> Did you really? Is this a MacGyver TV show or are you just making this up? So inside, she claims she found filthy beds, uh, shackled to rafters. She saw walls stained with blood and feces. She claims she saw human teeth and bleeding bowls and human bones. Like absolute horror show. Um, and oddly, like a large amount of paperwork, like someone was doing their taxes in there as well. Uh, horrified, she fled the scene and immediately reported the incident to the authorities, but she claims nothing was done about it. And there's this big ex extrapolation like, oh, the police were in on it and it's some kind of human trafficking going on. She's you know, basically saying this is a massive cover-up. It is weird. I mean, if it's true, it's it's definitely unusual. Well, she said it, it all 
points to a massive cover-up that involves members of the, uh, well, the local politicians who are involved in a kind of pagan cult that worships the green man. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, well, this reference to the green man really piqued her interest. And she's been down a bunch of rabbit holes over the years. And she's heard mention of a global elite trying to form a one world government and one religion. And there's this conspiracy theory that this new world religion will be nature-based. Green is the new religion, which we can kind of see playing out to a degree in society. It'll all be based on pagan beliefs and it could be the green man that'll be the figurehead of this religion. Because when we talk about the green man, if you're not uh, sure what we're referring to, we're talking about those effigies that appear in churches uh, throughout uh, England and Ireland and the rest of France and other places in Europe that are essentially of a... It's a human head just covered in foliage, like covered in leaves, sometimes coming out of his mouth, sometimes coming out of his eyes. Is he sometimes kind of portrayed as a pan-like figure as well? Yeah, it's a pan-like figure or a a a Celtic god. Uh, There's all sorts of speculation on what the figure represents, but it's kind of an archetype that's obviously much older than Christianity. And I'm still going to go with demon on that one. Well, yeah, that's, uh, that's one of the theories as well, is that it's depicting a demon. But anyway, with Amy's story, later on she emailed about a gatekeeper who said he was able to perform magic with a curved wand and he could point it at her and she would get frozen. Like this, all this crazy stuff going on in this email. And of course, because it's their Hellier TV show, this leads them on some wild goose chase. (laughs) They're meditating in a cave somewhere. Um, So all this high strangeness it stuck with her. This whole idea of the green man, it stuck with her. And she started to think about the missing 4-on-1 phenomenon, people going missing in national parks. She started to think about fey folk stories, pagan cults, ritual sacrifice, and ultimately kept on going down this rabbit hole. So on the topic of the green man, I'll put some uh, images in the show notes so you can see some of these carvings in the churches. Again, there's all these speculations on what it actually represents, what it means. I, I think the the fact that you can even find the green man in Mesopotamia. Mm, it um, says something, doesn't it? It says something about the age, how long this has been around. It's a kind of archetype that's in a lot of belief systems. Well, again, it's another demonstration of this idea of us being surrounded by these things. Like they're everywhere and you can only see them in certain circumstances because they wish to remain hidden for whatever purpose, whatever their intentions are. But they're always around. And this is why you've got cultures all around the world through all you know vast eons of time describing mm. very similar depictions. Well, she starts going into the Celtic gods that predate Christianity. Like mm-hmm. there's the man in the oak. Uh, He's a man birthed from the woods, a figure uh, sheathed in oak leaves, green, abundant and bountiful, and kind of a symbol of nature, uh, a symbol of knowledge uh, worshipped by the Celts. And you've got the oak king, which is also similar because the oak in mythology is connected to the winter solstice and the king comes at that particular time in that cycle and he basically fights the summer king. They're always in this constant battle, which is a representation of the seasons. Um, and in, interspliced with all this research in history, because the book is full of all these historical references, what I love about it and why it is excellent show fodder is because Sam includes all these stories. She's just sprinkling stories throughout the whole book. So she mentions one early on of uh, Joe Hickey Hall, who's a, I think she's a um, a folklore researcher mm-hmm. who uh, 
was reported, she got this story from a gentleman who wanted to remain anonymous. We'll just call him Jack. And Jack recounted this weird experience he had in Yorkshire in the UK. He describes this event that took place one evening. Uh, he and a friend decided to just have a leisurely stroll through the local woods. And it was winter time, so it was, they went pretty early in the evening. It was about 7 p.m. It was already very dark. And as they're walking and having a chat, their attention is drawn to the nearby woods and they can see little lights, just like what you took a video of last Tuesday, of little lights moving around the tree line. And they just thought, oh, it's probably teenagers messing around with torches in the woods, which mm. is what many people on Twitter suggested what your it's lights It's too were. high. I've got to point out that as well. It's, it's way too high. You're looking at at least 12 feet up. Huge gum trees, right? Anyway, Jack then said to his friend that, hey, we should go check this out. Now, his friend is like, well, why? <laughs> it's the middle of the night, dark woods. Why? Anyway, Jack wants to go, but uh, he ends up convincing his friend. So they head into the woods and they come across something just incredibly bizarre. He claims they see a creature that's similar to an ent from Lord of the Rings. What's that? I'm not familiar with that. It's a tree man. Oh. Tall, humanoid, very skinny, long limbs, long gnarled spindly fingers. Are the lights attached to it or they're just around? No, they haven't seen the lights at this point. Their head is round and very large, completely disproportionate to the body. The face is smooth, like it's got no features, almost doll-like. And their hair is made of sticks and branches. And the skin is made of bark. <laughs> so they're seeing a, a literal tree man in the woods. Uh, and that's kind of the end of the story. We, uh, I presume they, they get, get out of the there. hell out yeah, of there. Yeah. Um, and then she's going through various other archetypes that are associated with this. Because you've got the wild man of the woods who's depicted as like a gruff, grizzly, naked man. Kind yeah. of like a feral man with yep. a weapon. Um, and that's connected to the wild men in the forest, the thieves who used to, you know, just basically rob people yeah, on the brigands. highways. Uh, and then from that, that's connected to Robin Hood because Robin Hood was initially called Robin the Green. He so, does wear a green outfit. So, yeah, Robin the Green is directly connected to the green man archetype. Mm. Um, but the wild man is also depicted as longing to the fairy community, to the fa fae and magic community. And the wild man is often depicted as being able to shapeshift as well, or often being depicted as half man, half animal. Mm. Um, so this also links to Peter Pan in a way, because Peter Pan, what's Peter Pan? Well, Peter Pan's a fairy, basically. Yeah. Peter Han, I know his initial story is that he kind of left his parents or whatever, but he's flying. He can fly. He's not a real boy anymore. He's something else. Uh, and again, he's dressed in green, he's charming, he's manipulative, he's a bit of a trickster. And seemingly immortal youthfulness. And he's like the Pied Piper of children as well. He lures them away mm. to, to Never Never Land. And she points out, I think quite correctly, there's something much darker masquerading under this illusion of innocence. Uh, and she references this author I was also researching today, Diane Perkis. Uh, she wrote this book called Troublesome Things. And she found this connection between the story of Pan and the Mesopotamian nursery demon Kubu. So Kubu was, like Peter Pan, a child, the spirit of a child. And he was essentially trapped between worlds. He was trapped in Never Neverland, the in-between. And he would never grow old. And he was so envious of the other children in the land of the living, he would enter their nurseries late at night and steal them away 
to the in-between world. Oh, that's intriguing. So it's like, yeah, I mean, Peter Pan can obviously be traced back to this older legend, which is a representation of, again, some entity that is stuck and wants to take people to the the location, the dimension where it in, inhabits. You know what that's similar to? That's similar to the Pied Piper of Hamelin. Yeah, people, a lot of people, all these stories are connected. A yeah. lot of people think the Pied Piper of Hamelin is a, a fairy tale. It's not. It's a real event that took place. This, this unusual man rocked up in Hamelin in Germany hundreds of years ago and took 150 children, led 150 children away, and it became this, this fairy tale. But there was actually, apparently there's reports that that was a real event that took place. Insane. Like, who takes 150 children? Demons. Yeah. Demons from other dimensions. Yeah. <laughs> so she then relates this story told to Wes Germa uh, uh, from the Sasquatch Chronicles podcast. He had this guest on called Kevin. Kevin told a story of when he was much, much younger. He had this really weird encounter. When he was really young, his family lived in this small village in rural Ireland. And the village was next to some woodland that was easily accessible from his house. And the local people would often speak about the fairy people and that you would have to give them small offerings. Like you'd have to give them gifts to keep them happy. Mm. Anyway, one day he and his mother they decided to go for a walk to the woods and leave a little offering. Like they had a, an acorn of honey and they set it down at the base of this large oak tree. And it would be a fun thing to do with your kid, like take this little offering down to the yeah, fairies. Yeah. Anyway, Kevin said that as they did this, again, out of the corner of his eye, he sees this strange creature that steps out from behind a tree almost to reveal itself to him. He says it's two and a half to three and a half feet tall green, grey, long limbs, spindly, slender fingers, and an almost doll-like face that's similar to an old-fashioned porcelain doll. It sounds he said, like grey. He said it had big black eyes and slits for its nose and mouth. And he said it started to act really weird, just racing around in circles before taking off. To where? Well, it just kind of vanished. Now, he said, uh, she said, obviously, this is close to classic E.T., witnesses. But the history of the fae folklore in the area suggests that it's more fairy than alien. So coming up in the break for our PLUS members, we're going to go down this road again and look at these similarities between contactee reports, abduction reports, strange encounters with aliens, and see how when you look into the history of an area, it's more likely that they're fairies. They're mm. actually connected to the fae folklore. Or elementals. And we've got wild stuff coming up, like some of the four-on-one stories you've never heard. There's oh, excellent. Crazy cases from Australia, people getting teleported, all sorts of weird encounters with uh, fairy men in black. Oh, cool. Also tiny interdimensional monkeys. <laughs> just like well, last week. we've had the big ones, so we did mini ones Just now. like last week, but they're only a few inches high and they're adorable. <laughs> yeah, that wouldn't be terrifying. It'd just be adorable. <laughs> Head to mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus for all the details. Sign up today. You get access to the exclusive extensions we do on these shows every single Friday and Plus members get totally exclusive shows every single Tuesday as well. You're getting more than double the content when you sign up for Plus. Also, if you sign up for MU Max, you get access to our entire back catalogue 
Regardless which tier you sign up to, you also get a higher quality MP3 version of the show, a totally ad-free version of the show as well. So sign up today, mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus. Also, make sure you check out store.mysteriousuniverse.org for all of our merch. Bigfoot lamps are just flying off the shelves at the moment. I don't know if it's going to be another week or so before they won't be able to produce them before Christmas. So if you want to check that out, go to store.mysteriousuniverse.org. We also accept cryptocurrency at the moment. And since it's crashing, you might as well do something <laughs> with it. You might as well get rid of it. You might as well get rid of it. <laughs> so pick up a Bigfoot well, lamp. No, don't use cryptocurrency. We don't want that shit. <laughs> Why would we want it? Use cash, please. <laughs> don't tell them to use bloody cryptocurrency. Store.mysteriousuniverse.org. Check oh, it out. God. <laughs> That's a wrap for this show. Thanks for listening. If you're on Plus, stick around for the great stuff after the break. For everyone else, we'll catch you next week. Welcome back to your Plus Extension. Great to have you with us. We're going to.